Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today, I have the great pleasure to be speaking with Richard Thompson, author of the memoir, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975. Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. So I'd love to kind of hear a bit about the process behind writing this memoir. You've been a songwriter for... I don't know, 50 years. <laughs> and you, uh, what made you decide to kind of uh, tell your story in a different way through prose? Uh, I think I was interested to challenge myself to see if I could write something uh, with a bit more discipline, something that, that took a bit longer. Um, but, but it's also it's a period that people have asked me about a lot, uh, the 60s into the 70s. So I thought it was time uh, before... Uh, <laughs> before I get too old to remember, um, to, <laughs> to, uh, to, to actually write it down and, uh, and uh, add my voice to uh, the considerable uh, number of other voices out there um, about the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And, and did, you, uh, did you check your memories against like sources from the time? Was there anything that surprised you when you went back and, and remembered it or, or researched it? Um, yeah, I think you know it was easy to write anecdotes. Is it easy to just uh, you know to jot stuff down? Um, you know the funny stuff, you know the, the tragic stuff in some cases, um, and uh, you know that was easy. Um, comparing notes with my contemporaries uh, proved to be frustrating because uh, they would remember things uh, very differently to me, um, and uh, I know I'm right, uh, so I can't believe <laughs> they're wrong. And uh, also, I think all our memories are very selective. So, so I would remember certain things that they would have totally blanked on and vice versa. So, um, you know, so, so that was in many ways the easiest part of the process. That The hard part was actually putting it into a timeline, was actually trying to nail down dates of things. And, and that had to rely on a lot more sources. Um, you know, that there are websites that claim to have every Fairport convention gig you know logged logged in there which is not true in fact that there's huge holes in in that particular um uh, archive uh so um yeah that that was the hardest thing and uh we, we actually had to have researchers uh looking at, at uh at dates you think it was like the 13th century we were writing about but actually you know <laughs> even 50 years ago uh, it's, it's amazing um you know the records just disappear yeah, that must be a sort of strange experience having like online Fairport convention enthusiasts claiming to remember this stuff better than you do. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. And in some cases, they actually do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you write quite a bit about your childhood, and uh, I get the sense that London in the 1950s was, was quite different from what I as an American think of the 1950s as being like. What, what was the London of your childhood like? It seems to be very gray. Uh and I think that it wasn't just because all, all the all the movies were in, were in black and white, but uh, it's right. a black and white world. It was it was post war. Britain was very poor at that point. Um, a lot of London was um, was bombed, um, so you, you had big uh, 
uh, parts of the landscape missing, just piles of rubble, you know, which as kids we love to play on, of course. Um, and it was, it was a, you know, a slightly depressed place, but because, um, you know, the, the economy wasn't, wasn't so great. Um, you know, British industry was, was, was foundering. Um, and uh, because we were kids, we found lots of it fun. But, but um, you know, my, my memories are of this, this, this kind of, kind of grey world. Uh, in, in which we, uh, you know, enjoyed ourselves as kids, but but, but basically, I, I think it wasn't until the '60s that Britain really pulled itself around and um, certainly became a centre for youth culture. Right, and and you mentioned you know the London of your childhood being very grey. I think the kind of popular memory of London of the '60s is a very colourful place, kind of day glow coloured. Yeah, the, 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 it really changes. Um, I mean, first of all, you had the Beatles in sort of '62, '63. Giving Britain, a, you know, a shot in the arm, along with, um, you, you know, the, the mini skirt and, and the, you know, the E-type Jaguar, the Avengers TV show, you know, all, all these things that kind of uh, created this new uh, swinging London, you know, sort of spirit. And then um, when you had the psychedelic thing happening in 66-67 with Pink Floyd, etc., um, then it really became a, a bit, all a bit day glow. You know, uh, the, the colours really did change as they changed. You know, in, in America to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, and, and then um, we we really felt at the age of you know eighteen um, to be participants in that world. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious about the kind of direction you went in at that time, which was quite different from, you know, a lot of your contemporaries. Most people who start bands in 1967 are not looking at songs from the 13th century. Um, so was was British folk music a part of your childhood or or when did you kind of become interested in in that that style of music? It was always something that was in the background, uh, but it wasn't hip. You know, it wasn't something that you paid attention to. Perhaps just something that you absorbed quietly and and could regurgitate at a later date. So um, you, you know, the, the, there's a certain amount around the house for me. A, a lot of Scottish music uh, got played in my house, and um, there were books of uh, Scottish ballads you know, in the house that I would uh, delve into from time to time. And uh, you know, at school, um, you, you, you were required to, to learn a certain amount of British folk music. Usually, the cleaned-up Victorian version uh, with the naughty bits missing. Um, and then, uh, from about the age of well, I suppose 15, 15, 16, um, I started to hang around in folk clubs, and there you could see very good singers, very good revivalists, people like Martin Carthy, Shirley Collins, um, you know, singing traditional music, and and that became uh, you know um, a bigger part of the diet at that point. But still, you know, it wasn't rock and roll. Rock, rock, you know, rock music was the um, the thing that got us all excited. Uh, and it had the energy, and it had the uh, you know the the anti-establishment uh, pose to it. So um, uh, I, I, I suppose you know that that was our main focus. But these other things, at, at some point, did, really did become of paramount importance. Uh, by '69, I suppose '68, '69, we we started to include a lot more uh, you know rocked up versions of traditional music uh, in our repertoire. Right. Yeah. You said the word, the energy of rock and roll. And it kind of strikes me that, you know, maybe the equation of Fairport Convention is like folk music plus energy, right? Or at least that particular kind of energy. Would you say that's kind of an accurate summary of what you were up to in that band? I think it is. Um, Yeah, I think what we were trying to do was to be contemporary and to to bring, you know, what we felt of as our own music, indigenous British music, um, 
into the the, the landscape really and um and, and, and I think you know we, we we tried to develop this hybrid music that that, that used uh you know amplifiers used electric guitars basses drums um and, and use some of the language of, of rock music and blend it with this older style um you know and, and I think our intention was to uh was it was to create a, really a new music form um and also to give our British audience um something that they they might feel was important to them that they might feel that was uh part of their tradition yeah so that that's a quite well thought out sort of mission statement for the band was that all in place when you founded fairport convention when you were like 18 or is that something you kind of figured out along the way well i think we figured that aspect of it out along the way um when fairport started uh we, we were a thoughtful bunch of people and we did think about the musical direction and we didn't want to be like other bands uh we didn't want to be a blues band which was the you know the the, the lingua franca of the time um we wanted to be something a little bit different and our focus at the beginning of the band was lyrics uh, we loved um lyrics and we loved the fact that that intelligent lyrics thanks to people like bob dylan and the birds uh were coming in the, into popular music so what we love to do covers uh, by the, the, some of the great singer-songwriters at the time, people like Phil Oaks, uh, Richard Farina. Um, we got hold of Joni Mitchell um, demos before she made her first record. We got hold of the basement tapes, the, the Dylan basement tapes. Uh, um, uh, I think we were the first ones through the door with, with, with the basement tapes. Um, so that was our repertoire until we started writing our own material. And then we became writers in, in this kind of, you know, British folk rock style. And, and then, you know, a couple of years later, we, we, we really tried to uh, embrace the traditional thing. Yeah. A lot of your music shows a great deal of sympathy for sort of outcasts of society, you know, drunks, criminals, uh, the, the very poor, the rural poor. I got the sense from your book that your, your childhood was you know, pretty buttoned up. So where did that kind of sympathy for outcasts come from? I think it just comes from listening to traditional music, um, which is, you know, supposedly the music of the underclass um, uh, uh, described as such sometimes. Um, and in, in which you, you have, uh, you know, you know, the descriptions of the lives of, of um, you know, peasants, beggars, thieves, um, uh, and, and all of that, all of that implies. Uh, also, um, when I was starting to hang out at folk clubs, there, there was a heavy, you know, socialist um, aspect to them. Um, uh, so, so, so I think the, the people in folk clubs, the people who organise folk clubs, were very in sympathy with um, with socialism and uh, sympathy for the underclass. And, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons that there was that connection with that music. Yeah, that that's the connection between socialism and folk music is is very deep in Britain, maybe even more than in the United States. I mean, think about something like Billy Bragg, you know, a little bit later, but certainly coming out of that same tradition, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, in America, yeah, you had you had, you had uh, you know, people like Pete Seeger, the people who, who were uh, basically um, you know hounded by the uh, McCarthy uh, Commission. Yeah, um, I have a, a question that might be. Just only a question that I would ask as an American, but um, a lot of the early part of the book takes place in the Musewell Hill neighborhood. And uh, I'm a big fan of the Kinks record, Musewell Hillbillies, but I, I don't actually know anything about that neighborhood. So I feel like I, I don't quite get the joke. So what was Musewell Hill like at that, at that time, the kind of late, mid, late 60s? 
It's, it's a, you know, a, a leafy suburb of um, London. Um, it was a separate village, but probably until the 1920s, uh, when, you know, the, the growth of London kind of swallowed it. This, so it, it was, um, you, you know, a, a recognisable um, town, if you like, uh, within the London suburbs. Um, home to the Kinks, famously. Uh, the, the Kinks lived just down the road from where we used to rehearse, literally on the same street. Uh, but they had kind of moved on um, when we, we were becoming um, more successful. Yeah, when, we, when we turned professional, the Kinks were already living somewhere else. Um, uh, and I, I can't think of any other uh, particular musical entities who emerged from Muswell Hill. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a place on the map, musically speaking. Mm-hmm. And you, you also met uh, Joe Boyd pretty early on, maybe a distant relative of mine, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> did he sort of help you develop uh, your, your sound, your kind of signature sound as a band? Uh, well, Joe was great. Um, it's hard to think of anybody else in London at that time who would have seen what Fairport were trying to do and would have sympathised with Fairport's interest in roots music, for instance. Um, so it, we were very fortunate to run into Joe, or perhaps it was inevitable that we, we run into Joe, um, because what we really were on the same page. And uh, Joe certainly um, pointed some things in our direction. He, he would lend us records, um, all kinds of like, like jazz records, folk records, uh, world music records. Uh, to kind of whet our appetite and, and, and to increase our musical uh, knowledge. Um, and uh, he always encouraged us as, uh, as writers. And Joe would never kind of uh, be authoritarian about it. He'd never say, you know, you, you really have to, to, to record this, this song, you have to do this, you have to do that. Uh, he really um, kind of watched us and, and watched over us uh, uh, to see how we would develop by ourselves, um, for, for which uh, I'm eternally grateful. Yeah. And, and did he kind of help connect you with other kind of like-minded musicians? I, I know you played on the, at least one Nick Drake album that he produced. Was that, was that pretty common that he would kind of take people from one band he was working with and kind of introduce them to another group? Uh, yeah, I, I think with Joe, it was all about, um, you know, the, 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 you know, what would work on a record really. I, I think he saw uh, in Fairport people who, who were, um, you know, adaptable, uh, sympathetic, uh, and would probably work a kind of recording session. I mean, of course, we knew Nick, we knew John Martin, we knew um, uh, the Incredible String Band from uh, being with Joe's management company. Uh, and also, we were all on Island Records at that time. So, um, you, you know, it was a kind of a, you know, a small, folky world. And uh, it, I think it was inevitable that we would end up, uh, to some extent, on, on each other's records. Did you, when you made those first couple of Fairport records, did you still think of yourselves as basically a folk band? I don't know what we thought of ourselves as. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think we, 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 I think we always thought of ourselves as a folk rock band. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we certainly admired the Birds, we admired the Loving Spoonful, we admired um, Arthur Lee's Love. Um, you know, the merry-go-round, but people like that, uh, uh, people who, who were, I would still categorize really as folk rocks. So. Um, yeah, I think that's how we saw ourselves. You, you also write about uh, Jimi Hendrix sometimes jumping on stage during your sets and kind of jamming with you. Uh, wh- wh- what was that like? Did you learn anything about guitar or or anything? Yeah, um, 
you know, it, it was intimidating to 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 to, to watch Jimmy and to know he was in town. Even you know, uh, the, sure. <laughs> Uh, he was definitely the most interesting um, and revolutionary guitar player in, in London at that time. And some would say, you know, has been for the last 50 years. Um, and I, I think that that's fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I could learn things by watching Jimmy, you know, watch out how he played. Uh, he had a fairly idiosyncratic way of playing um, left, left hand, right hand. Uh, and, and he said to me, oh, you, you should raise, raise the action on your guitar. Uh, it's a little bit too low. Uh, to, to get to get the vibrato and, uh, and to get the bends, um, you know, he, he, he felt it was more comfortable to have it a little higher, which is what I did and which I've, I've done ever since, uh, interestingly enough. Wow, that's so specific. Yeah. Hmm. Um, one of the things I found interesting about, you, know, you mentioned this with, with Hendrix, but with a couple other times as well, that I think a lot of people heard Jimi Hendrix and thought, I want to figure out how to do that, or I want to figure out how I can do as close to that as I can do, given that I'm not Jimi Hendrix. And it seems like you kind of went in the other direction. You kind of said, okay, he's taken the sort of psychedelic blues thing as far as it can go. I'm going to try to figure out something completely different that I'm going to do with electric guitar. Was that kind of, was that a conscious choice at that time? I mean, that, that feels like it reflects something kind of deep about you as a, as a musician. Um. I think it wasn't just Hendrix, you know. Uh, uh, at that time, you know, the the guitar landscape in London were, were, was everyone was playing the blues, mm-hmm. and uh, a few people were playing soul music. But but mostly, you know, if you're a guitar player, you, you were playing blues. You know, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, uh, Mick Taylor, Peter Green. You know, all these guys uh, were blues-based players, and, and I thought, well, you know, it's a crowded landscape. I, I really need to do something a bit different. So, you know, I, I tried to give, give myself a, a slightly different style, tried to have different influences, um, listen to more to country music, listen to classical music, and listen to more jazz, um, just so that I would be influenced by, by different things. Um, and I think, you know, maybe uh, looking back long term, I think that paid off, actually, uh, mm-hmm. not being, a, I guess, another guitar, blues guitar player. Yeah. I certainly agree with that. And I'm, I'm curious about this because you are, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're renowned as being one of the great guitar players in rock history, but you also are a very distinctive guitarist and, and you're one of the few guitarists who I feel like can really do the like ripping electric guitar solo thing and also do the very intimate kind of folk style finger picking thing. Does that all feel like the same thing to you or does that feel like it's kind of different parts of your brain? Um. I tend to treat electric and acoustic guitars fairly differently. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, if I'm playing acoustic, then I'm usually playing unaccompanied and I have to keep some sense of rhythm going. I have to keep some sense of harmony going, uh, even while I'm playing a solo. So, so that, that, that forces you into a different style, uh, a different way of playing. Um, uh, and it, it forced me into a kind of finger style um, on the acoustic guitar, on the electric guitar, uh, you, there are other people covering some of those bases. So you are freer to uh, improvise. You're, you're freer to do different things uh, from night to night, which is also great. Um, and, and, and I think I just developed both, you know, almost simultaneously, really. Um, certainly in the um, late 70s, when I started to do solo shows, I, I really had to... Uh, developed that acoustic style a lot more. So, so, so that was when that, that really pushed on. And, and electric guitar has just been a kind of steady progression. Um, mm-hmm. And I still think of myself as a student of, uh, of both instruments. You know, you, you have to, still have to, still lots to learn. 
Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, do you have a preference these days for kind of which style of guitar you you enjoy doing more? Do you like going out and doing the solo acoustic sets, or do you like the the kind of full band electric rock experience more? Well, it's so nice to have the contrast. It's so nice to be able to do both um, mm-hmm. and to. You know, to to uh, to be able to put one down and, and and pick up the other one can be quite inspirational, and it stops you becoming you know bored or cynical about the, the music that you play. And I think for the audience as well, it, it's a, it's a, a nice thing that uh, you come to town one year acoustic, and that then next year you bring a band. You know, and it's a, it's a whole different thing, different repertoire sometimes, uh, different approach, and, and then you can the year after that you come back acoustic again, and it's it's just. Uh, you know, it changes it up for me and it changes it up for the audience. Yeah. Um, early on in, in Fairport's history, you brought on Sandy Denny, uh, one of the great uh, singer-songwriters of all time, to kind of be as much of a front person as Fairport Convention ever had. Um, what was your first impression of Sandy Denny? I think the first impression was that she was an extraordinarily good uh, musician, <clears throat> she's she she just just a great singer. Um, We've been auditioning other singers, and Sandy came in and just blew them all out of the water. I mean, um, she she sounded that such a complete singer um, at the age of 21, 22. Uh, she she's fully developed. Uh, she, she had uh, a great interpretive skills as a singer. Um, she really sang the song. emotionally invested um, in exactly the right way from from song to song. Um, She had a great range. Uh, And and on top of being a a really great singer, one of the best singers I've ever heard in my life, um, she was also a great songwriter and, um, you know, and a delightful human being. I'm curious about the decision to kind of... um play all of these uh, traditional songs, given that, as you mentioned, Sandy is a great songwriter, you're a great songwriter, there are other songwriters in the band. Um, why did you kind of decide, uh, you know, towards the second, third album to, to really mine this, this musical history rather than writing, you know, original songs? I mean, not rather than, but, you know. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it wasn't really an either or. I, yeah. I, think, I, think, I think we thought that we would keep writing. Um, and also explore the, the traditional thing at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and I think the more that we looked at the tradition, the more our writing became influenced by it. Uh, so we were writing songs that, that sounded more, more British, if you like. Uh, I think one of the reasons um, that after the Legion Leaf album in 1969, uh, the, 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 the group kind of splintered at that point, to some extent anyway, uh, Sandy left and, and Ashley Hutchings left. Uh, what, what was the, the, there, there was a difference of opinion over uh, how much traditional music we should be playing. And for myself and Sandy, I, I think we saw uh, the Legion of album as, as a one-off project. And that after that, we would continue to have traditional songs in the repertoire, but we would also have a lot, lot of our own uh, composed songs in the repertoire. And I think for Ashley, he, he thought that this was a whole new direction he wanted to go 100% into. Um, 
So he saw it much more as a, as a band playing just solid traditional music, um, which is something that he did much more with his next band, which was Still I Span. And the band after that was the Albion band. So, so um, he, he kind of went off and did that. Uh, as long as I was in, in Fairport, the, then it, it, there was a balance between composed songs and traditional songs. And Sandy um, always sang some traditional songs in, in her shows um, after that point. But, but again, I mean, she really concentrated on, on her writing, um, as I did as well. Yeah, I'd like to know a little bit about how playing traditional music affected your songwriting, because, you know, I think about a song like 1952, Vincent Black Lightning. That's that's a traditional English ballad, but it's about, you know, people who wear leather and, and ride motorcycles. So uh, how did how did kind of playing those folk songs influence your own writing? Well, I, I think uh, in the sense, well, I think in many senses. First of all, uh, you know, something like, like Vincent uh, is uh, is a ballad. Um and it's not that different from, you know, a Scottish ballad from, you know, the, the, the 18th century, say, or 17th century. Um, it shares a lot of the same characteristics, shares some of the same language, uh, shares some of the same kind of uh, uh, repetitions that you find in traditional music. Uh, and some of the same themes, you know, the, the, the outlaw, the underdog, um, who becomes a romantic figure, if you like. Uh, you know, also melodically, structurally, um, the, the, there are similarities with traditional music. Uh, just melodically, um, uh, I, I think that's been a huge influence on, on my writing. Uh, so um, I, I think I, I write stuff that sounds much more, more, more British. Um, and of course, there are overlaps with American music. If you think of the of Appalachian music as being uh, quite Scottish sounding, uh, quite Scottish pentatonic sounding. And then that becomes an influence on country music. So country music is, is very pentatonic. Um, so you, you, you can you, you can take a song like Vincent Black Lightning, um, and I can do this very heavily influenced uh, British traditional version. Uh, and then uh, the Del McCurry band can do a bluegrass version uh, using the, the same melody. And uh, to them, it's not alien. You know, there's still that common link uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, through the Appalachian Mountains. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's different, but in some ways the same. You read a lot in the book about touring around in a in various sort of falling apart vans um, to these to these smallish towns around Britain. Um, did that kind of, as somebody who'd grown up in London in a in a rapidly changing London, did that make you feel kind of connected to the? to kind of old England um, going to these towns that looked much the same as they would have looked kind of 300 years before? <laughs> I'm not sure that they did look the same as they did 400 years before. I, 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 you, know, you know, some there are some towns in Britain that are very well preserved um, and, and there are some towns that uh, are kind of fake preserved. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, a town like Bath is very 18th century. You know, it's a town like Chester is kind of pretend medieval but, but it was actually built by, by the victorians mostly mm. um I, you know I, I think a, a lot of what, what was surprising to us as we started to play outside of london what, what was really um you know how, how much of britain was industrial um you know if, if we played in the midlands we were playing something like birmingham or, or we played in the Manchester area um there were still so many mill towns um and that those old red brick victorian mills um similar to the ones that you have in the, in, in the States, really. Um, 
and you know, you know the the steel works, um, you know, and the, and the big cooling towers. Um, you know, it was a real industrial landscape that, that by the nineteen eighties was rapidly changing. Uh, you know, the, the industry went away very very quickly. Thanks a lot to Margaret Thatcher, I think more than anything else, uh, as um, you know, as the workforce became cheaper in other countries. Um, uh, a lot of that industry moved away. A lot of the coal industry moved to South America. A lot of the steel industry moved to to uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and, and so that, that landscape changed very very quickly. Um, but but you know that, that's that, that would be my main impression of um, touring the UK in sort of sixty seven. You know, mm-hmm. airport, making you know small steps outside of London and, and just uh, entering a world that uh, that we'd seen on TV, but we hadn't really really visited that much. Hmm, that's interesting. You, you talked earlier a bit about the kind of politics of the folk club scene being quite left wing. Did did Fairport think of their music as having a political context or or, or subtext at all? Well, I, th- I think we did. I think we we saw it as uh, you know as as music of the underclass, but but we didn't really uh, involve ourselves that directly in politics. Um, mm-hmm. Hmm. You know. You know. We we were. Yeah, we weren't singing "Band the Bomb" songs or something. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the Vietnam War was much less of an issue in the UK than it was in the US. So, um, I, I think our politics was always left-leaning, but but we weren't stridently political. Mm-hmm. Um, the band often lived together, uh, which seems crazy to me. That seems like a completely bonkers way to be a band. Why did you decide to do that? I think, uh, first of all, because it was uh, a good work environment. Uh, and I think the first time that we did it, uh, which was the summer of 69, um, it was really to, to develop the next album. And so we thought, well, if we're in close proximity, then uh, that'll save us on, on having to rent rehearsal space, um, people traveling long distances. I think at that time, uh, the band was quite far flung. You know, we weren't all living in London. Uh, people were all over the place. <clears throat> so um, it, 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 was, it was easier to, to wake up in the morning and then say, okay, uh, you know, uh, rehearsal at 11 and, and, and everybody's there, you know, in, you know, I only had to walk down the stairs from their bedroom. So in that, that sense, that was great. And, and then after that very pleasant experience of, of the summer of 69, we said, well, let's get somewhere else uh, so that we, we can kind of continue doing the same thing. Uh, and the next place we found was actually a very, uh, uh, drafty and cold and uh, unpleasant, and only had one bathroom between about fourteen people. So uh, <laughs> that was uh, le- less thrilling. Less thrilling. Sure. <laughs> but we were there for a year plus, you know, um, and uh, yeah, it served its purpose, I suppose. And uh, I'm not sure that I-, I ever did it again after that. After '71, I-, I think I-, I lived in in my own world, in, in my own uh, apartment or house. Uh, but it was a good experiment at the time. And perhaps it's something you can do when you're young. I, I think uh, once you get to a certain age, uh, the inconveniences uh, become mountains rather than molehills. Mm-hmm. Um, you went on tour in America. I think, how, was, it, was it just one tour of America or was it, did you do multiple tours with Fairport? I don't remember. Uh, with Fairport, I, I did two. Um, I, I, I did I did uh, one tour with Ian Matthews. I, I think I did two tours with Sandy Denny. So um, mm-hmm. in that time period, in that time period. So as, as someone who'd grown up on a lot of American music, what was it like, kind of meeting America in, in the flesh? 
Uh, yeah, interesting. It's always a little different than I've been expecting, you know, um, because you listen to records that come from somewhere else and, and, and you kind of fantasize about, about what that world is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, but, you know, New York was, it was a little, you know, stranger and funkier than, than I imagined it would be. Uh, you know, LA was, uh, was just like far more spread out than I, I could imagine in any city could possibly be. Um, San Francisco seemed um, uh, crazier than, than I expected, <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, so um, yeah, it was interesting, I, and also um, it was a very political time in in America, like the the, the, the you know the late sixties, um, uh, generationally um, quite um, uh, um, different. You know, um, it, it seemed a very conservative country with with, with a very uh, rebellious uh, youth movement, really. Uh, and I think again, a lot of that was to do with with, with the Vietnam War. And we, we we were kind of coming from another country and, and look, looking at it as outsiders, really. Um, and, and, it, and it seemed very, very strange and a little dangerous and a little scary sometimes. Um, but we certainly found ourselves in, in some situations uh, that uh, seemed uncomfortable. Um, this is a, a, a very lame interview question, but I, I want to ask it, which is, would you mind telling our listeners what happened while you were in the Detroit airport on tour in America? Oh, yeah. As I described in the book, um, we were on tour uh, with Fairport and, and uh, we're in the coffee shop in Detroit uh, and uh, we're waiting for our plane. So we're having some breakfast, uh, waiting for the plane. And, and we hear these insults coming from the, the next booth, you know, um, you know, like, like, you know, get your hair cut kind of stuff, you know, long haired layabouts, you know, look at those, look at those girls, you know, aren't they, aren't they sweet? <laughs> All that kind of stuff, you know, so, so um, sure. you know, in a, in a sort of, you know, a pronounced, um, it's almost a Southern accent really. Uh, and um, so, so I kind of peer around the booth and it turns out to be Buck Owens and the Buckaroos in the next booth, um, you know, bad mouthing it. And, and, uh, and, I was a big Buck Owens fan. You know, I had his records in the UK. I thought he was a wonderful songwriter, you know, great singer. I loved the records. They're just fantastic records. Uh, and, and I, you know, it was, it was a very disturbing uh, thing, really, um, you know, to, to be in that situation. And and I kind of resolved it in my own way. Uh, but you'll have to read the book to find out the punchline to that one. <laughs> okay, fantastic. <laughs> um, so you, you, at a certain point, decided to leave Fairport and... Um, I guess a question I have about Fairport Convention is, you know, this is a band that I don't think during your tenure in the band had the same lineup on any two records. <laughs> like it seemed like a band that was very volatile in terms of, you know, people coming and, and leaving and, you know, bands breaking apart and, and reforming other bands. Um, are, are you sort of surprised that Fairport now has, you know, lasted more than 50 years, given that, you know, it seems like in the book, it's on the verge of breaking up at any given moment? <laughs> Um, it's a surprise. Yeah, it's a kind of pleasant surprise for me. Um, I, I think you know, the, in the volatile years, well, well the, the the fact that we we had a, you know an accident that killed our drama, um, right, was uh, a real watershed for us. And, and I think uh, a certain amount of instability came from from, from the as a consequence of that. Really, uh, I, I think Ashley leaving, Sandy leaving, we were still really suffering from shock, I think, more than anything else. And, and we were making bad decisions in, in, in many ways. Um, after I left the band, um, yeah, I, I think, 
I, I think the band kind of, you know, always kept the same direction, but but the personnel did did shift. Uh, they, they actually stopped existing, I think, in '79 for a couple of years, and, and then kind of came back, uh, you know, in '81, I think. Um, and uh, you know, for the last few decades, uh, it's been, been a far more stable lineup. Uh, you know, very stable lineup, really. Um, but uh, you know, what's the natural life of a band? I really don't know. I, I think if if you get five years with the same lineup, uh, you're doing very well. You know, ten years is a, is a miracle, pretty much. Um, so uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I suppose it was pretty volatile at the time. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you left Fairport, did you have any sense of kind of what would come next? No, that was the problem, really, for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I left because I wanted to do more writing. I, you know, I really wanted to establish uh, a kind of a writing style, you know, that, that, as we were saying earlier, you know, is, is that, that thing between traditional and contemporary, you know. Uh, so I did that um, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I was thinking, well, I'll have to be a guitar player in somebody's band for a while. Uh, but then the phone started ringing and I, I got offered a lot of session work. So, so I did that really for the next year or two until um, I, I partnered up with, with my then wife, Linda, and, uh, and we started working as a duo. And then I think uh, our music became much more focused and our, our direction was fairly solid. And, um, you know, that was relatively successful. Yeah, I, I think your voice and Linda's voice really mesh together in a wonderful way, almost like Johnny Cash and, and June Carter Cash. Was that something you figured out right away or did that kind of take some time to to figure out how you're going to work as a duo? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I suppose, um, you, know, you, you know, the reason what we worked as a duo was because we were going out with each other. And... Right. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to bury the lead there, Richard. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, and, uh, you know, I was, I was working in Sandy's band, so, so I was away half the time, uh, and Linda was working on, on, on her projects, so she was away the other half of the time. So I said, well, how, how are we ever going to see each other? So, um, you know, the light bulb went off. Well, you know, perhaps we should be working together. Uh, and then we thought, okay, well, how can we do that? What can we do? So I, I said, well, I've got these songs. We could do these covers. Uh, you know, and, and we're just playing folk clubs. You know, the, the, the money's fairly good. You know, the overheads are very low. Um, and we could survive on that and think about, you know, career and the next step um, a bit a bit, a bit further down the road. So um, so th- that's really what we did, you know, and... and um, the first album that we did together, you know, we, we, we'd written enough songs in that in that period to uh, have an album's worth of songs, and that was the Bright Lights album, which I think uh, I still think it's a good record. Yeah, I agree. That's I, I like a lot of your records, but I think that one's probably my favorite. Um, oh, and, and that album has obvious similarities with the Fairport Convention sound, but but it but there are differences as well. How, how would you say your goals shifted when you came to write uh, and record that album? Well, I, I, I think I, I wanted to do a bit more singing. Um, it was great to have Linda there as another voice, um, who was was very good at, at kind of uh, interpreting songs and and, and uh, finding the, the right kind of approach to sing a song. Uh, so that, that 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 was that was good. Um, uh, so, sorry, I forgot, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was just sort of about you know the the musical direction. Uh, musical direction of, yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, I think we were just uh, thinking, well, you know, what works for us really. Um, you know, what we uh, you know we were writing songs um, that had a certain flavour to them, 
and really just recording uh, and interpreting those songs live uh, and seeing, you know, uh, what happened next, really. Um, you know, one thing led to another, pretty much. Yeah. I, um, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but I think that's the album that has Poor Little Beggar Girl, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that song is a really great uh, a song and almost to me sounds like folk punk, like something that like, you know, the Pogues or somebody like that would have recorded. When you heard those bands later, did you sort of think, hey, they're doing what we did? Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I, I could hear various threads in, in, in the Pogues. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, you can hear a very strong influence from the Dubliners in the Pogues. I, mm-hmm. I, I or anything else. Uh, but obviously, that there's, there's, a, there's a bit of Fairport in there that, that I don't think they ever really acknowledged, but but uh, they, they definitely owed something of, of a debt to Fairport. Um, and uh, what we, yeah, what, when I heard them, yeah, I, I, I think what we thought, well, in many ways, we were more punk than they were. You know, we were, we were playing faster, we were playing louder. <laughs> you know, um, the, the, they have a snottier attitude than we did, but, but uh, musically, I think we were as punk or more punk. Yeah. Um, I, I'd love to ask you about uh, another aspect of your life that you're covering the book that's less related to music or maybe less obviously related to music, which is your uh, kind of searches through spirituality. And you mentioned that you'd kind of been, you know, something of a, of a spiritual seeker for a long time. You'd read Zen, theosophy, kind of other, other items on the standard, you know, hippie syllabus. Um, but then when you discovered Sufi Islam, that seemed to have kind of struck a deeper chord with you. Why do you think that was? Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I ask myself that question sometimes. I, I, I think uh, because it seems, or, or you know, be, be, you know there, there are various, I should start by saying there's the various uh, schools of, 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 of Sufism um, that spread right across the uh, Islamic world uh, from, you know, from Indonesia to, uh, Morocco, Algeria, in the West, and, and, and the, the strain of it that I always found the most appealing was the Western strain of it. Uh, and, and Morocco is kind of on the same time zone as the UK. It's, it's just you know it's a straight shot south. And, and I think um, there's a kind of a, a, a more of a Western appeal to to, to, uh, to, to, to Moroccan uh, Sufism. So, so I, I think that was a real connection for me. But plus, uh, you know, I, I kind of concluded in my naive searching that the, the Sufis kind of uh, seem to have it down. They seem to have it nailed. They seem to, to know uh, what was going on. They seem to, seem to have the knowledge at, at that time in history anyway. Uh, and so uh, I, I thought that was something that I should explore more. Yeah. Um, did you kind of have specific questions you were looking for the answer to and you found those answers in Sufism or or was it was it more you, you knew that you'd found what you were, you'd, you knew what you were looking for when you found it. Does that uh, make sense? I think it's um, seeing a, a connection, you, you know, so seeing that, 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 that these people had a knowledge that was handed down, that, that, that they weren't making it up, you know, you know sometimes with some of the gurus of the 60s and 70s, I, I thought, well, with the, you know, that these guys are setting themselves up, but they're not really part of a tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, true that some of the Indian Indian uh, uh, spiritual leaders. Um, uh, so, um, the, the, to me, that was important that, that you, you could trace the lineage back, you know, the, the, you know, a thousand years plus. Um, 
And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I just thought that, they, they were, that the Sufis I met um, who, were, who were English, um, I felt that, that they had, uh, that they embodied something, you know, that, that, that they had some, some nobility of being that, that I thought, well, that's something that I want for myself. Uh, so I, I, that's what I was attracted to, I think. Another obvious connection to me seems to be that the Sufi tradition has always had a deep connection to both music and poetry. Was that something that appealed to you? Uh, I think absolutely, yes. Um, uh, yes, there's a whole um, tradition of, of music in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, which is called Andalusian music uh, that comes from the time when the Moors are, were <clears throat> uh, up in Spain. Um, and... Uh, it's a real science of music, uh, just, uh, just like, uh, you know, some Indian music is a real science of music. Um, it, you know, it, it has definite rules and it does things to you if, if you listen to it enough. So I, I found that very interesting and very appealing. Um, the, the musical aspect, absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, you know uh, and the poetry aspect, um, yeah, it's, it's beautiful stuff. Uh, that, that to me, that you know, uh, Music and poetry are like breathing, so uh, there's just a total joy in uh, in having those things in your life. Well, Richard, I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you. I've already taken up uh, a lot of your time, so I'll let you go. But thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful memoir, Beeswing. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Andy. 